It's good to see you all this morning. John chapter 11. It's where we turn in God's Word. Most likely that does not involve the turning of a page for you from where we were last week in finishing chapter 10, but it is quite the turning of a page metaphorically to come into chapter 11. John tells us late in his gospel that Jesus did many other signs besides the ones that he has been telling us about here thus far. But he says these that he has given to us in his gospel, these have been written down, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we walk through the first 10 chapters of John's Gospel, we have had a growing sense of Jesus' intentions in coming into the world. We've been learning and seeing more clearly why he has come, what he's come to do. We've also gotten a more clear sense of uh, why John is presenting his Gospel in the way that he has. And I would suggest to you this morning that on both of those fronts, What we have now coming into chapter 11 is something of a culmination of all that has come before it. What Jesus has said about himself and how John has thus arranged his description of Jesus' ministry, it all comes to this now. Everything shifts after this. It's one of our goals this morning is to simply understand that. And so what I'd like us to do is to take in here this morning the entire account at once, the first 44 verses of this chapter, and just look at them and notice their place in what we've seen so far and in what is coming. We'll be more detailed in at least some key parts of this section after this week. But to begin this morning, let's hear the entire account at once. This will be verses 1 to 44. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews who were just now seeking to stone you, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. 
After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me. shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet, bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What we'll do this morning is we'll consider three reasons that what we just read together is so significant. Let's begin, though, before we get to those, by just quickly summarizing what it is we just heard. What has just happened? After last week, they withdrew beyond the Jordan. You remember, they were seeking to stone him to death. And he escaped their grasp, and he withdrew. Uh, it says that he went to the place where John had been baptizing at first. This is the place that John 1.28 called Bethany beyond the Jordan. They call it Bethany beyond the Jordan, as you can guess, because there's another Bethany that it needs to be distinguished from. They're both going to come into play in this story. Uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan, we're not entirely sure where it is. In fact, as early as the third century, they had already lost sight of exactly where that place had been. It had been, uh, it had been forgotten. And there's speculation in the third century about where that was. Uh, there's two spots where we th are most sure it probably was. One of them uh, is about a day away from where he's going to be traveling. The other is about four days away. So you can tell based on, or depending on which one of those places we would find Bethany beyond the Jordan, the actual time of when Lazarus dies is going to be affected. Did he die uh, as the message is on its way to Jesus to come? Or was he still sick when that message reached Jesus and Jesus waited a couple more days for him to die and then came and traveled the four-day journey? That's, going to, uh, that's going, to, going to shape what we think about that. Uh, the important thing, though, in the first 16 verses, and we'll look at this a bit more quickly, uh, closely next week, is that either way, it's clear Jesus ensures... That his timing in coming to Martha and Mary is such that he will not arrive at their town until Lazarus has been dead for four days. We find that in verse 17. Now that's important for a number of reasons, but probably one of them is that there was, we know in that time, a common rabbinic speculation that when someone died, their body, uh, their spirit hovered over their body for three days before finally departing and uh, ascending. This was some of the speculation, the superstition of their time. So Jesus, in that case, would be guarding even against their local superstitions by waiting to come to Lazarus until the fourth day after his death. So then he comes, and he comes from that Bethany, Bethany beyond the Jordan, to this one, another Bethany that verse 18 tells us was only about two miles away from Jerusalem. That helps us to understand why his disciples were so nervous, doesn't it? It was just two miles out of this that they were actively trying to grab him and stone him to death. And now he returns to such a close proximity. Jesus meets with Martha and Mary in verses 17 to 37, and he has some key interactions with them there. We'll see some of those here shortly. And then he goes to the tomb in verses 38 to 44. He prays there to his father audibly. 
with yet another key statement there. And then he commands Lazarus's dead body to rise and to come out of the tomb. And I love the way that it's put in verse 44 in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, the result is, quote, the dead man came out. It's a great way to put that. Now, our goal this morning is fairly straightforward. What we want to do is to notice, and I want to make the case and help us to see why this is such a significant chapter in the course of John's gospel. I want us to see how everything has been leading up to this and why everything in a, in a profound way changes after this in this gospel. I've, I've, uh, I've put into our bulletin this week something that we used early in the study, and that is just a, an outline of the gospel as a whole. And you might, you might notice there that what we're entering into in chapter 11 here is a bridge between what's been described as two books in John's gospel, the book of signs, which is what we're just ending, and the book of exaltation. So essentially then we're getting an explanation this morning for why this piece of his gospel serves like this, as this bridge. And I want us to consider together three ways that this account that we just read is so significant here. The first one is this. This is significant because what we see Jesus do in raising Lazarus confirms God's fundamental goal that he had for sending his son. Isn't the understanding of that goal, hasn't that been so central to what Jesus has been teaching all the way through? Why has the Father sent me? This event confirms God's fundamental goal in sending Jesus. The goal that has become progressively clear has been that Jesus came here to reveal God. And that by revealing God, people would come to know who Jesus is and would put their trust in him. And so in the last couple of weeks, we've heard Jesus even speak to the existence of this very unique relationship between himself and the Father. And that understanding this is a part of understanding who God is. We see here in the Lazarus account a confirmation of that goal for which God has sent his son into the world. Just notice some things that are said here. Look back at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see what he just did there? The way he just equated the sharing of glory? that the Son of God was to have with the Father, this event is serving for the glory of God. How will that work itself out? The Son of God will be glorified through it. That's how. Verse 14, Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, he says. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to the crowds. He's talking to his 12 disciples. What do they still need to believe? What do they still need to see? They've already demonstrated that they believe him. But they've believed in, any, in, in just the way that anyone can believe. They've believed what he has thus far shown them and told them. And that is a picture that he has not finished showing them yet. 
What remains to be seen is the picture in which all of the other pictures essentially culminate. Jesus has been claiming to be the origin of life, the giver of life sent from the Father to bring life to his people. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is what he's putting to these sisters before he does what he's going to do. Look at verse 41 next. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Still, this is the picture that he's bringing in doing what he's doing. Verse 45, finally, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. This is the intent and what's being put on display here. And the display that he puts on as he brings Lazarus to life from physical death is the ultimate visible demonstration that he has come from God to bring life from God and is in fact the Lord of life himself. The second reason this is so significant for us is that it it exemplifies Jesus' insistence that we are helpless to enter eternal life through our own efforts. And I mean, it exemplifies the helplessness piece intentionally, doesn't it? You can't put that on display much better than by giving a command to one who lies dead in his tomb. This is an insistence we've heard from our Lord throughout throughout this account. We had this teaching in chapter 6, summarized in verse 65, when he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And that of John 8, 47, The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. By the insistence to Nicodemus in chapter 3, that you must be born again if you are to enter the kingdom. There is a new birth that is required. And that of a couple of weeks ago, chapter 10, verse 26, the reason you do not believe is that you are not of my sheep. It's no coincidence then that Jesus now calls out in a loud voice for someone to come to him. Only the one he calls to has been lying dead for four days and has started to stink. I mean, the King James says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. He stinketh. Why did Jesus choose to do it this way? We saw from verse 6 that he had intentionally delayed his arrival until this time. Did you notice that? He loved them. So when he heard, he waited two more days. He's doing what he's done all the way through, which is he is utterly submitting to the timing of his father. He will never be influenced, be manipulated by men to go and do something according to their timing. You remember his brothers tried to get him to go down to the festival, and he would not go when they told him to go, but then he went when he was sent by the father. He's been doing this. 
And his father's led him in this timing because it creates a picture that cannot be mistaken. And it's a picture not at all unlike another picture that we have in the scriptures, one that we read of in Ezekiel 37. Dennis led us in in a reading in that chapter, and I want us to go back there and to look a little bit before what, what he read. Look over in Ezekiel 37, the very start of that chapter. And probably, if your Bible's open to Ezekiel 37, you can see some of Ezekiel 36 there too. If so, that that works out well. Because what I want us to first see here is the context. The second half of chapter 36 is all about the new covenant promises that God makes to his people. Every time you hear the words new covenant, I hope you immediately think Jesus, new covenant, Jesus. Remember what we reference every month at the communion table. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the bringer of the new and everlasting covenant. So we're getting a description at the end of chapter 36 about the promises that belong to that covenant. Just listen to what God says he's going to do. Find verse 22 of chapter 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. There is the covenantal formula at the end of what he declares. This is what he promises in the new covenant. And then, like any good teacher, he says here, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Wondering if you're hearing me rightly, well, let me give you a picture of what I'm saying. And he gives us chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. What's the purpose of making that point? They were very dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, you know. 
Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. Did you know that you were in the Old Testament? There you are. One of a throng, an exceedingly great army. Who has composed that army? This is the picture, my friends, that God picked to get his promise across to us from the chapter before. And listen, he is not a mediocre teacher that as often as not comes up with analogies and then has to walk them back and say, uh, you know, when I think about it more, that's a bad illustration. Forget that. Let me try again. That is not our God as he teaches. Our God gets his illustrations right. You want to know what I'm promising? Let me show you. Go preach to that big valley of skeletons there and watch me bring the dead to life as a picture of me putting my spirit into them and granting them eternal life in fulfillment of the new covenant that I said I do not for your sake, but for the sake of my great name. This is the picture he chose. And now here stands Jesus in our text. We can come back to John 11. Here is our Lord giving what is the last sign he's going to give in this gospel concerning his divine message and mission. And what does he choose to do? He goes to Lazarus' tomb and he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And here comes the dead man. I imagine doing the, something like a penguin shuffle. His legs are completely bound and wrapped. I don't think that was a graceful walk out of the tomb, but here he comes. And you'd better believe in that moment that he was very happy not to be dead. You better believe that his coming out of that tomb was in full accord with his fully functional will. But he did not choose to come back to life. Jesus called him to life. And that call did not happen to meet with a willing human being, and thus out he came. The call created in him the life it demanded. And if we wrestle with that, we have to wrestle with God's chosen illustration in Ezekiel 38. 
It's an intentional display of power and authority. So Lazarus' resurrection is significant here for these reasons so far. First, because it confirms God's goal, the fundamental goal in him sending his son. Second, because this is the visual aid for Jesus' declaration that we are helpless without his power and work. Third, and finally this morning, this is significant because as Christ's final sign, everything changes after this. Jesus has now said what he's got to say to the world. He has shown the signs that he has come to show. It's helpful to know that John, who in his gospel never mentions the word miracle, but instead when he talks about Jesus' mighty deeds, his miraculous deeds, he uses the word signs, right? We've seen that many times. He's talking about these events, but he's especially making clear that they serve a purpose to point to some reality. It's helpful to remember that John, who speaks of these signs like this, I mean, 17 times he's going to speak of signs. He's not going to describe another one in this gospel. This is the last event given to us as a sign by the gospel writer. There will be three more times the word sign is going to show up for us, but they're either pointing, they're either speaking of this sign of raising Lazarus, one of them, or of just the signs in general. Jesus' signs in John's gospel are finished now. And that can be surprising to hear if you just look at where you are in the gospel because we're talking about chapter 11 and there's 21 chapters here. So what we find in verses 45 and 46 might be more significant than it seems because it could be emblematic of the two choices now set before the people. Either believe in him or side with his enemies. We read there, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So now you see down at verse 54, Jesus no longer walking publicly among the Jews. He is done with his formal public ministry. People will continue to come to him for a time. But the whole thrust of the narrative is now different. Now what we're going to see Jesus do is prepare his disciples for his death and for his ascension. Both of those things, and they're both spoken of in terms of the coming of the glory of Jesus, the glorifying of Jesus, which is one thing that's unique about this, about John's gospel. But really, in particular, the emphasis is overwhelmingly going to become the approaching death of Jesus. Our Lord. We see the very next conversation recorded here being one among the Sanhedrin. It's summed up in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The next time Jesus speaks, it's at 12 verse 7. Mary has anointed his feet, and he says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And the next time he speaks, it's chapter 12, verse 23. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Explain that, Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Look down at verse 27 there. Now is my soul troubled, 
And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. We could just keep perusing through and we would see the same emphasis. 1336, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. Chapter 14, he's going to prepare a place for them. He starts telling them about the gift of the Spirit coming. Chapter 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. You've been here through this entire study. When has he spoken like this to this extent about his death? This has not been the emphasis. But after Lazarus, it's all over the place. And if we remember the timing in his life and ministry, it's really not that surprising. I mentioned the number of of chapters left here can be misleading to us because of his earthly ministry, which spanned something like three years, two and a half, you realize there are only six days left on this earth before he's lifted up. Six days. Chapter 12 starts six days before the Passover celebration. And it's that Passover celebration that in chapter 19, he's hanging on the cross and they're rushing to break his legs so that he won't still be there the next day, which was the Sabbath of that Passover feast. We are this close. In fact, John is going to start to mention the Passover now repetitively. Because this, in fact, is why Jesus must die, isn't it? He has come to lay down his life. Not as an example, but as a Passover lamb. He's come so that his blood might be spilled and might be applied to our doors. That the wrath of God himself would pass us by because of his shed blood. That Passover, I mean the Passover, the one that every other Passover since Exodus 12 has been pointing to. That Passover is now six days away. Time is very short. So it makes sense in the flow of, of, of the timing here that he is going to begin to emphasize. And John's narrative is going to begin to emphasize Jesus approaching death. So we're seeing this morning this evidence of the significance of this sign. Here now in the fact that the emphasis totally shifts after this event happens. Jesus has now shown the signs he's come to show. You can tell, I hope, what we're focusing on this morning is very much the big picture of this last sign when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. We're going to look in greater detail next week at several things that are said here in his dialogues between himself and and others. But I would have us end our time this morning by just noticing something very specific in what we've read. Do you notice about your Lord here that at any moment that the divine will desires, this Jesus can call the dead out of their graves? Think about that authority. And think about what Jesus said already in John 5, 28. He said back then that an hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will come out. You remember that? 
either to a resurrection of life or to a resurrection of judgment. But he said, there's coming a day where I will lift up my voice and all the dead will come out from their tombs. Our God is telling the story of his greatness with the whole book of human history. He's telling a story of his greatness with the book of your life and of mine. And in that story, he ordains many ups and many downs, always teaching and revealing himself through it all. But my friends, here's what we see and remember this morning. At any moment, he has the authority and the power to bring those events, the ups or the downs, to an end. Does this display of power not make clear that God's perfect timing is not only a force in our lives that can't be stopped, but it's one that we would never want to be stopped. This is the one who wields this power. Verse 4, our Lord says, This is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. My prayer this morning is that we would remember this, that our King... Jesus Christ truly does reign, I mean actually reign, over every realm of our lives. And he is accomplishing something great by his timing and by his works. Often his timing necessitates suffering in our lives, as it did that day for Mary and Martha. But there is not one area in your life in which our Lord has less power than what he's put on display here. If the very beating of Lazarus' heart and the firing of his brain synapses were in the hands of Jesus Christ, so were Lazarus' job opportunities. So were his finances. So was the health of his family members. So were his genetic predispositions to various illnesses. Uh, So was the outcome and usefulness of his life's work and efforts. The list goes on. It's always been in his hands. And he knows what he is doing in and through us as he works for his good purposes. Jesus describes it another way in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He has numbered the days of that pesky bird that sometimes lands here and flaps and makes shadows on our window. He's numbered the days of that bird. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I do think that we're supposed to chuckle at the way that he words that conclusion. I think he's using humor there. Jesus is allowed to use humor. The impact of what he said is obvious, isn't it? Our lives are moving on a path guarded by God and ordained by God. And so we are right to join Martha when Jesus called upon her to entrust her brother entirely to his good purposes. 
We are right to join her in standing, fixedly standing upon the confession. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. We give that confession as our response to anything that comes to us. Whether we understand that thing or not, whether that thing makes us rejoice or mourn, that's our response. That's the ground that we live on. And we do it knowing that one day this age will end. And we who are hidden in Christ will stand again, risen, called by his voice, forgiven. Standing before our king himself, who is the great conqueror of death. And when we see him face to face, him who it says we have now only seen as through a mirror dimly, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. These are the promises that God's word has given us. Let's see him put this display of God's power and his goodness and his intentions for his people on display. Let's see that display this morning. And let's respond to it by trusting our Savior more today than we did yesterday. What is that area of your life that you have seen fit not to entrust to him? We all have them. What will you do this morning with what he has given you in his word? Will you respond to what he's shown us this morning by finding a room later today? Closing the door, going to your knees and joyfully confessing out loud, Lord Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the savior of my life. In you will I trust. May God use his word in the lives of his people today so that we would choose to trust him more today than we did yesterday. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that such a thing, the fruit that is born in our lives through the work of your word, the fruit that comes to us by the work of your Holy Spirit, we acknowledge just that. It is fruit that comes from you. Lord, we, as your people, we long for it. We mourn over our fallenness, our brokenness, over the ways that we still now fail to trust you as we should. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we have come to Christ and found satisfaction for that hunger. Lord, our great desire is to please him more with our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would use your word this morning to do that in us, to grow our trust in your purposes, to grow our trust in the reign of our king today, who, yes, is our king today, yes, is seated on a throne, yes, does possess authority and is wielding that authority today. Lord, help us remember that you have numbered the hairs on our head, that we are always doing the wise, smart right thing when we respond to what you bring us with trust and with thankfulness for your goodness. Help us in these things today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.